0: D.B. Cooper, won't you please come back? Looking for you high and low.
1: Because leave ain't polite in the middle of the night. D.B. Cooper, where did you go? Good evening and welcome to Cooper Five O. It's the 50th anniversary D.B. Cooper skyjacking special from Cairo Radio in Seattle. I'm Felix Bunnell. Over the next hour, we're going to explore the history of the hijacking that took place 50 years ago this very night. Northwest Airlines Flight 305 from Portland to Seattle... This is a fact-based show, not a lot of conspiracy theories. Um, We've got some guests on tape, others joining me live in the studio or by phone. We're going to meet a photographer from the Seattle Times who was at the airport 50 years ago tonight, taking pictures of the passengers. We'll meet the kid, now a grown man, who found some of Cooper's cash along the Columbia River 41 years ago. And we'll hear from a passenger on the plane. We have a lot to get to. First, we're going to start with my exclusive interview with FBI Special Agent Larry Carr. The FBI closed the case five years ago. Agent Carr was in charge of the last sustained effort to solve the mystery. I had him start off by telling me the basics about what happened 50 years ago tonight.
2: On November 24th, 1971, a man entered uh, the Portland airport. He bought a one-way ticket. uh, I believe it was $20 to Seattle. Uh, It's a 30-minute flight. Uh, Later that afternoon, he boarded the flight, uh, took his seat in uh, row 18. Um, I believe it was seat E um ordered a, a bourbon and seven up um smoked some Raleigh filter tip cigarettes and uh just as the plane was starting to roll down the runway for takeoff he turned around and there was a stewardess sitting in the jump seat by the rear exit door and he handed the um, stewardess a note that said uh, you know he was hijacking the flight and interestingly enough uh, her name was florence schaffner she, she thought it was just him passing his phone number hoping that, you know, she would call uh, uh, Call him for a date or something like that. So she just put it in her pocket. She didn't even bother reading it and uh, when she when uh, Dan Cooper saw uh, her do that uh, He said miss. I think you should read that note and then she said something in reply. Are you serious? And uh, he said yes come sit by me and uh, at that point in time he, he uh, made his demands um, he wanted two hundred thousand dollars in cash, uh, four parachutes, two fronts two uh, two back chutes um, uh, and he wanted to go to mexico and so Florence uh, told the uh, other one of the other flight attendants she was working with Tina Mucklow, um, you know this gentleman is hijacking the flight um, you, you need to sit by him i 'm going to the cockpit to relay uh the demands when she got to the cockpit. she informed the crew. Um, they informed uh, Northwest, and, and Northwest informed the authorities that the flight was being hijacked. Uh, that information then filtered down to the FBI, and we went about getting all of the uh, supplies he asked for. The $200,000 came from Seafirst Bank, which I believe is Bank of America uh, today. And then the parachutes, um, the two, I believe the two front chutes came from Issaquah Sky Sports. And in the, the two uh, back shoots, uh, one was an MB6 Navy bailout rig, uh, the other one was a Pioneer sports shoot. Uh We we gathered the money, the shoots, and got it all to the airport. Uh, the flight had to circle for a couple of hours while we got that uh, all together. Uh, the plane landed. Uh, he was given the the parachutes. He was uh, given the money. He let everyone go except for the the cockpit crew and Tina Mucklow, and then the plane departed um to the south and somewhere over battleground washington he uh, jumped out and he's never been heard from since
1: and so the fbi is a lead agency and then is is tasked with finding out what happened finding out where cooper landed and searching looking for him is-
2: yeah you know the investigation started that night when the plan um landed in reno um collecting the evidence of course searching the plane for cooper interviewing um, all, all the passengers were taken by uh, bus to SeaTac, uh, the terminal. And they were all interviewed by FBI agents. And, of course, the crew was interviewed that night, as, as well as several other times throughout the investigation.
1: And now, the, you know, the, the issue, the fact the money has never turned up other than that $6,000 or so that I found along the Columbia back in 1980. That seems to be like a good uh, indicator that Cooper never survived or never made it out of wherever he landed. Um is that sort of the is that is that kind of the biggest clue in the whole thing about the about the fact he probably didn't survive? Well yes, it is. Um so
2: the thing, one of the one of the things Cooper, or one of the problems Cooper had, is when he got the money. Number one, he didn't request denominations, right? So he he got a bunch of twenties. You know, ten thousand twenty dollar bills. Uh, it weighed almost twenty pounds, and he got it in a in a sea first uh, vault sack. <laughs> um, and so you couldn't you couldn't secure it in any way. It was just a big open vault sack with you know twenty pounds of twenty dollar bills in it. Uh, so what he did is he, he cannibalized one of the, the front chutes, the, the reserves, and, and cut a bunch of parachute cords out. And then he tied the top of it. He cinched the top of it together and then wound the parachute cord around the, the top of the, the sack, uh, tied that off. Then he took more cord and wound it top to bottom all the way around. Uh, so he kind of made a bundle. And then Tina Mucklow said the last thing she saw as she went to the cockpit uh, when he was um, after the takeoff is he tied uh, that bag that he made uh, or the package that he made out of the vault sack to his belt. So I am sure that once Cooper jumped out of the plane at around 200 miles an hour, uh, that thing just blew right off of him.
1: I I suppose there's one scenario possible where the money gets away from him and he does land and survive. Is that Right.
2: that that's a, that's a possibility. You know, I always speculate that the money uh, blew off of him. Uh, the plane was, you know, a little further to the east of flight path Victor 23. Uh, and then it, it, at one point, a, you know, a flood through the Washougal watershed uh, got the bag uh, caught on a snag and it floated down the Columbia out the Washougal into the Columbia and made its way up onto the beach. You know, the bag was eroding. Some bundles fell out. The rest of the bag floated out into uh, the Columbia. Huh. You know, and one of the problems uh, Cooper had is, uh, and then again, this is one of the clues that leads me to believe that he was one of these individuals that had just enough experience or just enough knowledge to be a danger to himself. Huh. Um, so he had a choice. You know, so if, he, if, if Cooper was an expert and, and kind of really knew what he was doing, what he was getting himself into. Uh, He he would have chosen the best and requested the best, you know, equipment to do the job that he was facing, but he didn't make any demands uh, for the type of equipment. So he just got what they had. Uh, And interestingly enough, uh, one of the the uh, the actual the actual reserve that he took with him was a um, classroom uh, demo uh, reserve it was only half a parachute uh so students when they were taking lessons if the main failed to deploy the, the the secondary chute uh they would they would go through the procedures throw the chute out and then roll it back up and put it back in the bag the container um that's the one he took it was mistakenly given to him um from from Iskawa Sky sports mm-hmm. so for his for his main uh for, for his main chute uh he chose an NB-6 bailout rig. So it's a Navy Backpack 6. It's used for pilots ejecting from an airplane. Um, It has no steerability. It has a high rate of descent, and it has an instant opening. So there's no sleeve inside on the parachute to to delay the opening. Uh, So there was a lot of shock that would have gone through that, especially at 200 miles an hour. But he also had his choice of a sport chute of the day that was steerable, had a sleeve to uh, soften the opening, uh, and it had a much slower rate of descent. Uh, mm. But he chose <laughs> the worst parachute for the job he was facing. Um, you know, he was he was jumping out into an absolute unknown drop zone. He had no idea where he was at, um, except that he was somewhere uh, south of Seattle. Huh. I mean, he. In fact, the pilots originally. Uh, were discussing going out over the ocean because they didn 't want to fly at ten thousand feet on victor twenty three because of the mountains, um, but they chose to to go ahead and take victor twenty three luckily for cooper uh, or he would have jumped out over the ocean
1: in terms of all this stuff that uh just from your you know very close work on this case and your proximity and access to all those files and everything, do you have sort of the master theory about who d b cooper was i mean not specifically who but kind of his profile, why he did it, what he was trying to do, and, and what happened?
2: I, I've thought about this. And, you know, of course, you know, who who was he since we don't know? So we have to speculate by what we do know. So, so I believe, you know, he was a blue-collar guy, um, that he must have been a loner. He uh, probably um, got fired from his job. Maybe his house was taken by the bank, something, because he said he had a grudge. Uh, To uh, Tina Mucklow, he just didn't say he he said it wasn't with your airline. I've got no problem with your airline But I do have a grudge because she asked him, you know, why are you doing this? Um, So so I think he he wanted um, Money to fund his life felt that he was entitled to it um, and he was going to get it, you know through this crime Um, I, I think given the fact that he he came up with the idea to jump out of an airplane um, and and he knew from the air where McCord base was, how far it was to Seattle. Um, I think that perhaps uh, he was what was called a cargo kicker, you know, uh, from from military planes. So he was in the military, some branch, Air Force, Army. Uh, he worked um, as a cargo kicker. So he knew about parachutes, but he didn't actually use them. He wore them, knew how to put them on. Um, He knew to fly the plane, to slow it down uh, with the flaps and the wheels down, which, you know, you might do if you're throwing cargo out um, so the parachutes don't rip at a high speed. And when when he died, nobody, you know, missed him.
1: Why do you think we still care so much about this and why the details are still interesting to so many people?
2: Well, I mean, come on, it's a great story. (laughs) You know, it even starts off with, it was a dark and stormy <laughs> night. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's just made for uh, a lot of fun. Um, you know, I, I think everybody loves a good mystery. Yeah. They're, the, they're the number one sellers, and this is, a, this is a great one.
1: That was FBI Special Agent Larry Carr, and this is Cooper Five Zero, the D.B. Cooper 50th Anniversary Special. Now, next up, I recently pestered passenger Larry Feingold for minute details about his flight from Portland with D.B. Cooper.
0: Felix, that's 50 years ago. I can barely remember whether I was old enough to walk. Um, um, but let's see. I, I'm sure, and of course, remember in, in those days, all you did was you walk into an airport, went up to a ticket counter and purchased a ticket and went to the airplane um, without any security or anything else. My recollection is I probably had a reservation and just picked up a, a Ticket at the airport because that was before computers were spitting out tickets.
1: Yeah, I went to the Portland airport, you know, uh, this summer and, and walked the distance from where the you know where you would have gotten out of your car into the ticket counter and to the plane, and it was so short. I always think about SeaTac and that long, you know, the subway ride or the long walk out to the end of the B concourse. But this was like in what I could figure was where the gate was. It was like maybe a couple hundred yards from the sidewalk to the gate.
0: If I recall, you just. Into the airport, and walked down a passageway, and there were, um, we actually climbed up stairs to get it to the airplane. They were not using uh, any of the uh, lamps. You
1: know, Ralph Himmel'sbach's book. He says that there was construction, and they actually had you guys, you know, in the terminal. You walked downstairs onto the tarmac, and then up the actual rear air stairs that he was eventually used for the hijacking or the for the parachute jump.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, I I got to know Ralph rather well, because uh, I was in the U.S. Attorney's office, and over the years, we talked many, many times as this case was unfolding. Yeah. But I think he's right. I just remember we, the two people who were on the plane just all sat uh, fairly close to each other because it was Thanksgiving evening, there were not many uh, people on the plane, and it was a lousy weather evening. I think you've covered some of Seattle's famous storms, and that was a really stormy a uh, couple hours we were in the air, um, and then the other thing that stands out in my mind—it was a real, real storm that we flew into, and when we finally landed.
1: I read that I read that the plane took off around a little bit after three, and you didn't land until about 5:45 or something like that. So you're in the air for an extra probably two hours than you would for a normal Portland to Seattle flight.
0: Yeah, yes, we were in. The pilot kept talking about. What he announced, he came on every once in a while and announced that there were difficulties and they were in touch with the ground and working on it and uh, trying to make everybody comfortable. Of course, coming on to the, the speakers and saying, We're trying to, you know, there's a, an issue and we're trying to resolve it. Um, didn't exactly in a stormy night give you great comfort. <laughs> but uh, as I said, he, but he had a very smooth. Uh, uh wife and certainly didn't found it if there was you know, a skyjacker on an airplane, but no one would have thought of a skyjacker in those days.
1: Yeah. You know,
0: now people that may be the first thing they would assume. Um, but certainly not then.
1: Obviously this this is like a uh, part of Northwest mythology now and the story's been told many times and you've been interviewed many, many times. Is there is there one particular memory that really stands out vividly from that evening 50 years ago?
0: I don't think any of the passengers uh, knew that skyjacking was going on. The cabin attendant, uh, Tina Mucklow, was very calm and cool as I look back on it. And the thing that stands out to me, uh, since I didn't know what was going on, actually two things. One, when the plane landed... And we landed safely because, if I recall, they told us to get into a tucked position. If a plane crashes, it's going to do you much good to be in a tucked position, except so maybe you're closer to the ground, so you break your head a little more easily. <laughs> um, but what I remember is um, we, we were out on a uh, far runway. This is before the third runway at SeaTac, and a truck, uh, a fuel truck, pulled up to the plane and. Um, started fueling the plane uh, or taking fuel off. I didn't know what was and I thought they care more about the fuel than they do about the passengers on this airplane because, again, we did not know there was a skyjacking. And I didn't learn that there was a skyjacking until finally they opened up the front uh, uh, entry of the plane. And an FBI agent who I had known and had worked with me, and I with him, uh, and I said, John, what's going on? And he said, Larry, there's a skyjacker on the plane just, you know, we're dealing with the situation.
2: Huh.
0: So those, I think those things stand out, uh, assuming I'm so correct about it 50 years later, those things are something <laughs> that are shared into my memory.
1: Passenger Larry Feingold, who rode along with D.B. Cooper 50 years ago on this very night, uh, spoke with him recently from where he lives in Israel, um, I'm Felix Benell. This is Cooper 5.0, the DB Cooper 50th Anniversary Special on Cairo Radio. We'll have more after the news. Welcome back to Cooper 5 on Cairo Radio. We're marking 50 years since the D.B. Cooper unsolved hijacking. I'm Felix Bunnell. Joining me live in the studio is Seattle Times legendary photographer, Greg Gilbert. Good friend of mine. He's been with the newspaper for more than 50 years. Um... And those don't include any years as a paper carrier, I'm pretty sure. It's all as a photographer, right? All as a photographer. Uh, and he was at SeaTac Airport in the terminal as the hijacking was unfolding 50 years ago at this very moment. He even photographed the passengers as they gathered in the old Northwest Airlines VIP lounge on the B concourse. I wonder if anyone listening tonight has ever been in the old VIP lounge of Northwest Airlines on the B concourse. Greg, uh, thanks for taking time on Thanksgiving Eve to join us. Um, what do you remember most vividly from 50 years ago this very night?
3: Well, it was, a, like someone earlier said, it was a dark and stormy night. Uh, f- we were first dispatched to the uh, Northwest Gate where the passengers were coming off. And uh, we tried to commandeer a couple of passengers. I think there were 36 total. And um, most didn't want to talk. Yeah. There was one, one guy that sort of stood out, and he, he answered questions. But the rest didn't. Most said, I don't even know didn't even see the person because he was way in the back of the plane. And was it like a media zoo, or was it just sort of somber? And what was the the tone or the feel? It was kind of a media zoo, but there weren't— I think I was the only still photographer, though later, within an hour or so, there was a friend of mine, a photographer from the Portland Oregonian, and a reporter. They had driven up from Portland, I guess. It was kind of surprising to see them there. And then after we— photographed or I got a chance to see and photograph interview the passengers. We were taken up to the roof, to a rooftop spot, uh to look out into the, the darkness and see the airplane that was still parked away it was parked intentionally away from any ramps, but you could see it it was probably maybe a thousand feet or fifteen hundred feet away from the the building.
1: And so did you so you could actually see the plane out there from where you were standing did you actually see it leave and take off and everything
3: i did i wa- oh. we watched it take off and that wow. was something that i don't think i've ever heard much talked about but as, as the plane took off immediately behind the plane was a large military helicopter huh. lumbering up and away which, of course, wouldn't be able to make 200 knots, so I don't yeah. know what they were thinking of in case listen, maybe saw the chute drop down in front of them or something.
1: Now, I've joked with you before, but any time we do any historical research about anything that's happened in Seattle <laughs> in the last 53 years, especially if it's a Seattle Times microfilm or online, I'll look and there's a picture of something. Nine times out of ten, it's Greg Gilbert, photographer. I mean, you took the photograph of the, well, the last person leaving Seattle turn out the lights. You took that photograph of that billboard. And I did. And countless other photos. I did. So it's... I mean, I, I can't thank you and your other colleagues enough for the work, kind of work I do now with history. I rely so much on the photographs and the information. I know now there was one other Seattle Times photographer out at the airport that night, and I actually tracked him down and talked to him. This is Bruce McKim.
0: I had a friend who uh, was a police officer for, for the court, and he happened to be on that day, and uh, he has since passed away. But... Uh, He said, uh, "We don't know what it is, but the airplane's parked over by the uh, uh, east or the west side of the uh, runway." And uh, I can't tell you any more than that. But uh, you can uh, in that in those days there was a a section to the south of the observation deck, which was usually locked out for dignitaries. And so he led a, a couple of us, uh, a uh, TV photographer and myself, and I can't remember who the TV photographer
1: was. So that was some special, that wasn't the regular public observation deck. That was some different part of the roof of the old terminal building. That is correct. Was it actually a place that had handrails, like it was the VIP thing, or was it like just the roof?
0: No, uh, it was just like, it was just an extension of the uh, of the observation deck. And he said, uh, the whole area over there is locked off and, uh, no, nope, we can't get you out there, but uh, you stay here as long as you want to. And I, I got there around, oh, I think five 30 or six in that neighborhood and, uh, set up my four by five on a tripod and just hung out and, uh, it got, it was getting, well, it was, it was dark. And uh, so, shot a, shot a few frames and then uh, just stood by. And uh, the picture that, that was used was uh, while they were waiting for the ransom and the parachutes to come back.
1: And I'm pretty sure that's the only photograph of the actual hijacking in progress. because You can see the car there off to the left and the the drawn the shades are pulled on the windows for the seven two seven. Um one thing, you know, I know the um that party down at the uh, the Cooper Caper party down at the aerial store down uh, kind of west east of I5 around Woodland, that didn't start, I think, till the fifth anniversary, nineteen seventy six. And I know I didn't really start paying attention to this. I think I was eleven years old when the money was found along the Columbia. That's when I was most excited about DB Cooper. I'm sure you probably didn't know on the very night 50 years ago that this was going to be some long-term thing. Did you assume that this was going to be solved? That there was, I mean, I mean, it was kind of a regular night for you being out at the airport taking pictures of something, right? Sure. I think we all thought, well, the guy will will find
3: him, and it'll no, not not be a big deal. I was going to add, you know, Bruce McKim, he sounds pretty good for 85, <laughs> and he had the forethought to bring a tripod and a long lens. To get that really great shot huh. that that I didn't have because I was on the roof with just regular camera lenses.
1: Yeah, I mean the the picture he took the really famous photo. It's the, I don't know if it's some sort of extreme telephoto, but it makes the building behind it looks like look like it's right next to the jet. And we I was working with the SeaTac people earlier this summer, and we figured out that the building in the photo is the Prince of Peace Lutheran Church, wow. which now it's blocked out completely by trees. Wow, um, because that area has changed so much in fifty years, obviously. Yeah, telephoto lens will do that. Yeah. So how late were you at the airport? I mean did you, were you, was there a reporter with you interviewing passengers or what, how did that work?
3: Yeah, a reporter and I were out there. I don't remember who it was, but after we after we watched the plane take off, uh we scampered back at that time. we were a morning paper, so we had an evening deadline, so I needed to get back to the paper and process my film and make prints. Huh.
1: And then in the ensuing search and everything and all the other kind of different stops along the way with the money or different people who've come forward and claimed to be DB Cooper, did you get involved taking photographs of those kinds of things over the years? Yeah,
3: we had a tip off. There was uh, several paratrooper uh, experts who said, "Hey, there's a guy out in the north end. We think he's the guy." (laughs) And uh, he did a he didn't smoke, and b he was shorter. But uh, reporter Don Hanula and I went out to the guy's house. He was very open about it. He didn't restrict us or not want to be photographed. And we stopped along the way in a 7-Eleven and found a a pair of sunglasses that sort of matched the the style that Cooper had. We had him wear the sunglasses, and then we twinned up this guy's photo with the artist's sketch. It was a dead ringer. It was pretty amazing. (laughs) But he he had an alibi. He had, he was having Thanksgiving dinner with his parents. But you know, for two hundred thousand, would your parents maybe lie for you? I don't know.
1: Yeah. Well, it's it's the pictures that I've, I've looked at this the Times microfilm from that day, and there are pictures of Larry Feingold, who we heard from earlier in the show. You you shot his photograph. Um, and he I don't think he was quite the spokesman for the flight at that point, but he sort of emerged as the spokesperson over the years. So yeah, it's um. It's crazy that fifty years later we're able to track you down and talk to you about something <laughs> that happened, and you were actually there, witnessed it, and witnessed it because it's one of these mythological events where there's so much speculation. You're one of the few people who actually was there and witnessed part of it. And that's pretty cool. Thank you. So, all right, happy Thanksgiving, buddy. <laughs> you too. And that's Greg Gilbert, longtime Seattle Times photographer, and you're still working for the Seattle Times, right? This
3: year is fifty-four. Next year, uh, July tenth of. Twenty twenty two will be fifty five years.
1: All right, on congratulations. Well, we'll have you on for the seventy fifth anniversary special in twenty five years. Now, bring uh, a, up... a walker. Which is... <laughs> coming up next, we meet a DB Cooper history hunter and the kid who found some of Cooper's money back in nineteen eighty. Uh, I'll give you tell you right now, spoiler alert: he's not a kid anymore. They'll join us live on Cooper Five O, the DB Cooper fiftieth anniversary special on Cairo Radio with Felix Beno. Welcome back to Cooper 5 on Cairo Radio, marking 50 years since the D.B. Cooper hijacking. I'm Felix Benoit. and I'm really excited for the guests who are joining us for the final segment of tonight's big show. I want to welcome Eric Eulis. He's been searching this year along the Columbia River for D.B. Cooper's briefcase and parachute, near where some of Cooper's money was found back in 1980. How are you doing tonight, Eric?
4: I'm doing very well. How are you doing, Felix? Wonderful.
1: Thanks for making time on Thanksgiving Eve. I also want to welcome... Sure. Brian Ingram, who was eight years old when he found probably the biggest clue ever in the D.B. Cooper mystery thousands of dollars in the sand near Vancouver, Washington on the Columbia River. How are you doing tonight, Brian?
5: Good and great. How about yourself?
1: Very good. Thank you so much for being here. Um, how did you actually find the money?
5: Uh, you know, as a child, playing on the Columbia River, just uh, trying to dig up some, some sand, trying to make a campfire, basically. It was it
1: sand. And did you know what it was right away?
5: No, it was uh, dark in color. It looked like driftwood. Uh, it wasn't until we was able to shake off some of the sand. We actually saw that it had uh, printing on it. And, and that's when we could tell that it was bundles of 20s.
1: And I imagine as an 8-year-old, you'd probably never heard of D.B. Cooper before.
5: No, I hadn't. No, sure I hadn't.
1: So what happened next in terms of I know because it was a, a day or two later the media coverage exploded. I think I was 11 years old at the time, or yeah, I was 11, and it was a huge deal. It was a, it was you know media frenzy there for a few days. What happened between you finding it and how did it, how did you guys kind of put two and two together?
5: Well, my you know my dad went back to work uh, and, and and told some of his fellow workers that he what he had found and they sparked the interest. They told him about the Cooper case and so they called the uh, police department and read off some of the sale numbers, and that was when we found out that uh, what 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 this was linked to, and that's, that's really when we found out the impact of the, the find.
1: That's pretty cool, because I swear, without you having found that, we'd be talking about a very different story, because it was... The case obviously had grown very cold, even by 1980, and this certainly fired things up again and created all this speculation. Um, now, Eric... You've been working with Brian for a long time. You're a, you're a D.B. Cooper expert. You've been studying this the case. You've actually been out there along the Columbia digging this this past autumn, in the last month or two, haven't you?
4: That's right. As a matter of fact, I was there last week digging uh, and uh, basically looking for the uh, missing parachutes in the briefcase, which ostensibly carried the bomb. I believe that D.B. Cooper married, buried not only the money on the beach there, but those other items as well, and that during the FBI search, uh, they just simply missed the other items because they were looking in an area that was just slightly off from uh, from where they should have been looking.
1: Now, can you break any news tonight about what you may have found this past uh, couple of weeks or past couple months?
4: Uh, unfortunately, no. And, you know, the, the thing about it is even though it's only about 300 square feet of beach that we're looking at, the problem is is that there's an enormous amount of uh, like three or four feet of rock and, and uh dirt that's been placed on it in the last 10 15 years to actually stop erosion so it's almost like digging through concrete Mm. to get through that layer to get down to the beach that's very labor intensive takes a lot of time and it's going to it's going to take some more time before we can actually find something there
1: can you explain how the fact the money was found where it was found up river from where the lewis river enters the columbia can you explain how that changed the theories and changed the thinking on where cooper may have may have landed
4: Well, I mean, that was, a you know, when Brian found the money there, that uh, got everybody scratching their heads in in law enforcement because they, of course, expected or believed that D.B. Cooper had, you know, landed some 20 miles away and moreover downriver. So, uh, really, it just kind of threw everything they knew uh, on the table and just couldn't figure it out, basically. So, uh, they started thinking that perhaps he landed in the Washougal watershed area, you know, further upstream and, and that type of thing. But in later years, uh, through continued research, primarily in the private sector, we've determined that uh, that, that was not accurate. And I believe, indeed, that, that this is an indication that the FBI's landing zone or jump zone was also not accurate.
1: Hmm. And, Brian, you know, finding that money 41 years ago now, how did that change your life? Uh,
5: I, well, you know, just being part of the story is, is and, and, and the case has been. Great. Uh, You know, I meet a lot of people. I've met a lot of people over the years. Eric, one of them. The list goes on. Uh, You know, as a child, when I was young, I was um, thrown into the spotlight. It was kind of cool. I enjoyed it. (laughs) Uh, There was a lot of of negativity that came with it along the way. Uh, Anybody who knows the story and has read, they've they've seen that. But uh, as my aspect of it as an 8-year-old forward, it's been um, – I've really enjoyed it.
1: Now I know that you had to split the money. I think with the insurance company.
5: Global indemnity, Jim. Yeah,
1: yeah. Do you still have any of the actual twenty dollars bills left, or have you sold them, or what have you done with them?
5: Uh, I do. I do have. I do have uh, quite a quite a few. Oh, cool. uh, quite a bit of a collection left. Yes.
1: And how frequently do you take them out and look at them, or show them off to people? Uh
5: you know. Not a lot, you know I've got a few put up that I can you know, put out that I can see whenever I want to look at them, but most of them are, are under lock and key. got
1: it That's really, It's a really cool piece of history, and again, without you as an eight-year- old playing along the banks of the Columbia 41 years ago, we'd have far less to talk about in terms of the DB Cooper mystery. All right, um, Eric, uh, let ask you the last question. Are you going to do any more digging or searching or what's next for you with your with your research and your hunting that you're doing?
4: Sure. Yeah, the the, uh, the digging on Tita Bar continues. I believe that will be picked up again in January. Uh, and I suspect it's going to take a little bit of time. Uh, you know, it'll, that's, we'll be done with it uh, in 2022. There's no doubt about that, because again, it's not a large area. But it's just very labor intensive. We cannot use equipment. It's all manual labor. Uh, and obviously I live in Arizona, so it's a little bit of a trek. It's not like I can just kind of park shop there for three weeks, but, uh, but January is when I'll be there next, and I'm very confident that sometime over the next 12 months that we'll actually
1: find something. We'll do another special then, I promise. Well, listen, Eric Ulis uh, D.B. Cooper expert and D.B. Cooper hunter, and Brian Ingram, the once-upon-a-time once 8-year-old once who found the D.B. Cooper money, thank you so much for joining us for Cooper 50 this year.
4: My pleasure. Thank you for having us.
1: All right, have a good Thanksgiving, you guys. Thanks again.
4: Same to you. Happy Thanksgiving,
1: too. All right. I want to thank everybody who helped me with this show. Uh, Cooper Five O here on Cairo Radio, um, our program director, Brian Bucklew, our news director, Charlie Harger, who helped me get that wonderful interview with uh, Larry Carr from the FBI, Greg Gilbert for stopping in as a guest, and uh, Larry Feingold for speaking with me. I also want to uh, thank board operator Shane Peterson. Hey, have a great Thanksgiving, everybody. Thanks for listening to Cairo Radio, and uh, just have a wonderful uh, 50th anniversary of the D.B. Cooper Golden Jubilee and our DB Cooper Cooper Five O Anniversary Program. Good night. Lie on DB.
5: Sure wish I was there. Where <laughs> are you? Hey, drop me a line if the sun's okay. Would you?